promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. I'm a wonderful person. The Holy Gospel for this Ascension Sunday comes from St. Luke, the 24th chapter, beginning at the 44th verse. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated and let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I'm not going out on a leap here when I tell you hockey is a very big thing in Minnesota. Surprising, right? Water freezes in Minnesota, right? So you have a place to play ice hockey. That's, that's kind of important. You know, and Minnesota is practically Canada in, in many respects. So, you know, that, that works. And, and I really did, I didn't know anything about, I didn't even know there was hockey until Mighty Ducks came out. And then I still didn't even understand how the game was played until I met my wife who loves hockey, and then she made me love hockey because, you know, being in Minnesota for 25 years kind of grew on me. So Minnesota hockey, you can guess which team we root for, right? Minnesota Wild. They had a really good season this year, played really well. Everyone kept saying, oh, it's their year to win the Cup. And then they went up against the St. Louis Blues in the playoffs and lost the series four games to two. The last two games were not even a contest. It was like the peewees were out there playing with some NHL guys. Uh, the phrase that, we, that I learned that is used for a team like that where basically they're just getting destroyed at the end of the season, the phrase is, they've gone to the lake. Now, if you know anything about Minnesota culture, uh, you'll understand what that means. We, we lived in the Lake District area of northern Minnesota for five years. And uh, people have, you know, two homes, basically. If they live in the Twin Cities, especially the people with a lot of money, uh, they have two homes. They, they have a home in the Twin Cities, and then they have what they want to call a cabin. I'm using air quotes. Because most of these cabins, am I right, sweetie, uh, are nicer than most houses any of you will ever own. Okay? They've got all their toys there, all those things. And so they go to the lake, especially during the summer, to escape reality, right? 
to rest from whatever they are laboring at. It's actually become a tradition in Minnesota that there's a four-day work week during the summer. Everybody takes Fridays off. They just work, you know, 10 hours a day the other four days. They had Flex Fridays before Flex Fridays were a thing. Just, just want to say. But every Friday is a Flex Friday from, you know, June to August. That, that'd be a nice thing, right? No. Um, and so when, when we say a hockey team has gone to the lake, what we mean is that for them... The season's over. Doesn't matter how many games they have left. Doesn't matter if they're even in the middle of a game right now. For them, they're done. They're not even thinking about the games anymore. They're not thinking about the playoffs. They're sitting by the shore, drinking a Bud Light, playing cornhole, and eating s'mores. That's what they're doing. They've maybe cut their hockey hair in their boots. Maybe. But they're done. When we come to the Festival of the Ascension. What we're talking about is that Jesus has gone to the lake. The game is done. The season's over. Jesus won the cup. There's no more games to be played. And now he's seated by the lake and he's waiting to come back for you. The problem that we have as Christians is that we spend the majority of our lives pretending that what I just told you is not true. We spend the majority of our lives thinking that we need to fight tooth and nail for every point and every goal and every win from here until the day we die because we think that it's up to us, that everything is up to us. We think that there is this game of life that we have to live out and be victorious in or else everything Jesus has ever done for you or for me is for naught. Not to mention that one of our favorite pastimes, especially in the church, is we like to put on the coach's hat. And we like to critique how everyone else is playing the game. And so we compare stats. We look at our, our uh, amount of attendance, our, our volunteerism, our time in the scriptures, our appreciation or lack thereof for long sermons. The music we like for, in church or, or maybe what bars we patronize or not once we leave here. Uh, the clothes we like to wear. The movies we watch. Uh, how much we give in the offering. Or even worse, what political party we support. Or what, even worse, what political party our pastor supports. That could be even worse. All of it is like these stats that we've collected on the back of our discipleship trading cards. You know, the ones that come in a little cell phone pack with the cardboard gum that smells like gum but doesn't taste like gum, right? And you flip it over, and it's like, oh, don't mess with Julia. She's got a 100% attendance record. She can pronounce every Bible name ever, and she's got a mean change-up when she passes out bulletins, right? We do those comparisons with one another all the time. The ascension of Christ is Christ finishing everything. It is him putting into action the words he shouts from the cross, it is finished. It's why we have Psalm 110 this morning as the traditional psalm for Ascension Day. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then the psalm goes on to talk about a bunch of bloody stuff, right? The taking over of kings, the bringing down of kings. 
the reign of his scepter, the reign of this Lord as king. This is a messianic psalm, which means it is about your Jesus. Sitting down at the right hand of the Father, Jesus has been allotted all the power, all the authority in heaven and on earth. I said all. So does that mean some? Or does it mean all? It means all. Seated means that the war is over. There's no more battles to be fought. The enemies are your sin, your death, and the devil, and he has them as his footstool. Why? Well, he needs to put his feet up on something, right? When you're at the lake, you need an ottoman to put your feet up. So you keep your feet out of the sand so you don't get chiggers and all that stuff. It's really kind of gross. There's little tiny bugs at the lake. (laughs) But he's got his feet up on those things. What this means is that all the things you do each day to try and win the war yourself or all the times you spend ignoring the notion that there is a war to be won, Jesus has taken care of it all. All the fighting and comparisons you make of one another, of other churches, other pastors, kids, youth, whatever. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the champion. Jesus is the Savior and Lord. He is the one seated on a high and exalted throne now, meaning that you are not, and neither am I. But also that every other supposed authority is subjugated to him. And what that means is that, if anything, our focus has to be on the humility that comes from that. I really don't like to get political in my, my sermons. I think I've told you before that I tend to like to be an equal opportunity offender. So if you voted for one guy, I'll offend you somehow. Voted for another guy, I'll offend you somehow. I'll find a way just because I want to. I like the needle a little bit. But I think also part of the reason why I try to avoid being political is that when I was in the ELCA, all my colleagues were political all the time. And it tends to lean to a certain side of the aisle as though that's the only place where Jesus resides. Like Jesus is a card-carrying member of a particular political party. Um, Even though when I read the Gospels, he was an equal opportunity offender too, right? Due to the overwhelming amount of tragedy over the last few weeks in this country because of shootings, Uh, in churches and schools and grocery stores, and each political side taking aim at what it thinks works, right? No guns, more guns. No police, more police. Mental health services, background checks, whatever. Let me ask you, church, if a society stops teaching about humility and even humiliation, the lowliness of humanity, as a hallmark of a better society. If a society refuses to accept that we are bound to sin and cannot free ourselves, if a world removes any absolutes from its philosophy and lays the foundation for any notion of the sanctity of life to be so pointless that an 18-year-old can point a gun in the face of a 9-year-old and not think twice about pulling the trigger, you tell me what policy or law can fix that. Is there one? Because last time I checked, there was one that was given on the top of a mountain 3,500 years ago that said, you shall not. And yet,
We, obs- we obsess over this idea that we can curb evil somehow by just, you know, clip its wings a little bit here or there. When if we have sucked all of the understanding of humility, all of the understanding of our lowliness, our low anthropology, the fact that we are not inherently good, the fact that we have a Jesus sitting on a throne right now and we're not going to ascend to that throne. Otherwise, we have people thinking that we can create a utopia by just reliving the book of Judges all over again. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It's said multiple times. It's said multiple times in that book. And you wonder if the Old Testament is relevant. We just keep doing the same things over and over again. We're creating a world in which there's no possibility for love or hope to come out of that unless we start with this notion of an enthroned Jesus and that we are not. In our epistle passage, Ephesians 1, where I started the sermon with a line from there. Paul helps us see this necessity for humility that leads to love. I've heard of your faith and love, he says. That's how he begins. I've heard of your faith and your love. And with Paul, there's this understanding. Faith in God, trust in Christ, and from that, love of others flows. Why? Because where true faith is, where our hearts and our eyes and our ears and our souls are turned towards God and all that he has done for us in Jesus, then love for others flows because we learn we are sinners saved by grace apart from anything that we could ever do. That none of my competitiveness means anything. And so I don't try and be a better Christian than you. Instead, I share with you our mutual love for Jesus and for his body, the church, and for one another. Then Paul prays this whole long blessing upon the Ephesians, that God might give a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him. To know him. Do you know him, church? Now, I'm not talking about that you know his birthday is December 25th. Do you know him? Do you know him? Have you come to the knowledge of him and what he has done? Then he says, so that having those, our eyes open to see and know Christ, we stop looking at ourselves and instead look at Christ and the hope he brings in defeating our sin and our death. And all this is brought about through the power of God in Christ. Not the power in you. Paul says the power of God in Christ in which he saves us and he gives us an inheritance. Is an inheritance something that you earn? Oh, I've been a good boy. I was the good kid, so I better get the better half, right? No. An inheritance is something that is given to you by the grace of the one who decided to write the name of the Lord. Gifts to us an inheritance, even though you're probably the black sheep in the family, just to let you know. (laughs) No doubt. And then he gives us the meat of it. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. That includes your name, just if you're wondering. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things 
under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church. That means for you, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does that mean for you? Well, I've said this, I think, in every sermon I've ever given here. You're not Jesus. You're not on the throne. You are not Lord. You are not your own Savior. That's something I need to hear as a pastor quite regularly because pastors have this unfortunate flaw that we tend to think that it's our job to save people, to save the world. We, if anything, we are the powers and the authorities that have been subjugated, that are under his feet. We're his footstool. Basically, we've lost and we don't know it yet. And maybe we need to learn that. Within all of this, right before the ascension, in our gospel reading, Jesus says to the disciples that the outcome of his ascension is that repentance and the forgiveness of sins is to be preached throughout the world in his name. Have you ever watched one of those period pieces set in the Middle Ages where the guards come to the house and they bang on the door? Open up in the name of the king! Right? They're not coming in their own name. They're coming in the name of somebody who has some authority, right? Has some power behind his name. You better open up because the king is not happy with you. Or uh, uh, a warrant for your arrest. I'm not thinking of anyone particular in this room right now, maybe. A warrant for your arrest. It's, It's signed by a judge who has the authority to arrest you. Right? Authority behind a name. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins is preached in the name of the enthroned Christ. Come with weight attached to it. A weight that, that tells me, for instance, as a pastor, that even if I don't want to forgive you, because maybe you have sinned against me, but you come to me and ask for forgiveness, I have to. Those are my orders. I'm supposed to. I call you to repentance, which is not feeling sorry for yourself, by the way. We have to get rid of that. Remorse, yes, you should have remorse over sin. Repentance is turning. Turning oneself from going one way and going the other way. So when I call you to repentance, basically what I'm doing is I'm giving you the GPS coordinates of where you need to look. When I'm telling you, turn to Christ, I'm saying turn to the enthroned Jesus. The Jesus who sits there mediating for you beside the Father. To say, yeah, Dad, don't look, don't look at, don't, don't look at him. Look at me. When you want to know, Albert, you look at me, Daddy. Because I am what Albert has become. I am what the members of Grace Lutheran Church are. When we talk about Jesus going to the lake. We were talking about this cosmic battle between light and darkness, good and evil, life and death. What has happened in Christ has been uh, uh, the, the gifting to you of all that you wish you could do on your own. The, the immortality, the belonging, the acceptance, the salvation, the righteousness. 
Christ being on the throne also and not here means that he is outside space and time now. He's not held down now to that 33-year-old Jewish rabbi body that was able to take the nails for you and to die. Now he is above all those things, above every ruler and authority. That means including time, which is wonderful because that means he is here present with us right now when we read his word, we hear it preached, when we receive from his table, but also he is present right now with families in Texas and Buffalo and Laguna Woods, right? So that he is with them as the enthroned Jesus, as the one who gives life. With Christ on the throne, we are given the hope also that where he is, we shall be also in the presence of God as resurrected ones forever. That, that our bodies might perish, our bodies might decay in this life. Someone might even end our life, physical life, in this time and space right now. But Christ likes dead things. He does. That's why he waited for Lazarus to be really, really, really dead. He likes dead things. He likes to bring life into being and create in places where there was nothing before. He likes to find the worst of the worst and to forgive their sin so that those of us who don't think that is fair can suddenly realize that if he is willing to forgive and save someone worse than me that I perceive to be that way, what does that say about me? In Minnesota and It used to be in California until we basically dried up every lake from here to God knows where. Memorial Day weekend was a big day at the lake. It was for me anyways as a kid. We had a cat, well, it wasn't, ours wasn't a Minnesota-type cabin. It was a glorified trailer. Um, But, you know, the, the lakes will be packed with people. Boat ramps full. Restaurants crammed. All because, uh, We've decided that we take this gift of a federal holiday that is meant to be the remembrance of a particular thing. We take it for granted. Many of us do. This federal holiday that has become a day for us to hang out at the lake is supposed to be a day that we remember someone else paid the ultimate price to free us. To free us from sins that may come to harm us that they died, that others may live. Well, Christ died and rose so that others may live. And he sits at the right hand of the Father in order to make it so, to make it true for you. Church, Jesus is your sacrifice. He is your life. He is your everything. Like other people sitting at a lake right now, enjoying the water, enjoying the breeze, enjoying the fun. Jesus sits at the lake right now at the right hand of the Father, holding the eternal Sabbath until the time comes when he does return. In the meantime, look to this enthroned Jesus. Maybe even if you have to, picture him in one of those really bad uh, deck chairs, flip-flops, you know, Cut off jeans and a, and a Hawaiian shirt, maybe? I don't know. Beg the Holy Spirit to come and open your mind, not only to know the scriptures, but to know him. 
for what he has done. Be gifted with the grace of knowing that the game is over. The season is done. Christ has won the cup. Your attempts to win are futile. And you're really bad at it anyways. So why don't you let yourselves lose to him? You're going to. So why not just let it happen? Thanks be to God. Amen.